Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know about a new project that we've launched in partnership with our friends at Soul Pancake. Unmistakable Creative Shorts is an animated series based on our interviews from the show. And a big shout out goes out to Sarah Steenland, who did an incredible job on bringing the animated version of The Crossroads of Shoulda and Must to life. Visit youtube.com slash soulpancake to watch the first episode. And stay tuned on Friday for a behind-the-scenes episode where we'll give you a sneak peek into how all this came together. Now, let's get to the show. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, Scott Eblen joins us to talk about the power of presence and character traits of effective leaders. Scott, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I came across you by way of, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Michael Bungay-Stanye, and he, he has been, you know, referring some interesting people to me. And, you know, I usually re- reach out to people uh, like him and say, hey, who do you know that we haven't heard on every other podcast and mm-hmm. who might have an interesting story? So uh, on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that's brought you to what you're up to in the world today? Wow. Okay. So that's a big one. So where do I start? Um, I'm probably best known you know, it's changed over the years. Maybe I'm best known now as an author. Uh, I've have two books out in the world, um, and the latest one came out last year, last in October of 2014, and has done pretty well. And you know, it's, it's gotten some traction. So I think a lot of people probably know me as an author. Uh, Fifteen years ago, they probably would have said he's the executive coach or the executive coach, and I still do coaching, um, but I also do a lot of speaking. And uh, and writing and uh, leadership education uh, for different companies. Uh, other people would say, "Oh, he's the guy at yoga class," because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I do yoga pretty much every day, and uh, did a, a yoga teacher training program, uh, a two hundred hour program, a couple of summers ago, and um, that's a big part of my life and a pretty sustaining force in my life as well. It's been kind of a game changer for me in a lot of ways. Mm. Well. It's interesting because when I hear you talk about it, it seems like there's all these different careers and and potential labels that you've taken on as a byproduct of how people describe you. But Mm -hmm. what I'm really interested in is how you have ended up on this path and how you got to where you're at. Yeah, okay. That's a a different question for sure. Um, So the path that I'm on, you know, everything I just talked about or mentioned, uh, for the most part, I've been on for the past 15 years. Um, Prior to that, I was your classic a corporate guy. I don't know if I, I don't know what classic means exactly, but I was a corporate guy. That's that part for sure. Um, and when I got into the coaching work, I, I decided about a, a year or two before I left my corporate job 
that I was really, you know, I was in my late thirties and I, I had a really low boredom threshold and I, you know, by a lot of measures, I guess, or in a lot of people's opinion, I'd been pretty successful quote, you know, air quotes around that. Uh, but I just wasn't really happy at, at, you know, deep down, I wasn't happy and I wasn't happy probably with myself. I was really, really self-critical and judgmental of myself and probably, well, not probably, definitely of other people, you know, they kind of go together. And I just started through a lot of conversations with people that I love and love me and friends and coaches, you know, like professional coaches and clergy and a bunch of other people. I just really started trying to sort through what did I really what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I had a fair amount of exposure to coaching uh, in the corporate world, and I really kind of gravitated to that. I, I got a lot of benefit out of it personally, and I started thinking to me like that's the stuff that I could do, you know, that that I, I and I could see myself doing that for a long time because it really is about the other person. It's about helping them figure out what they're trying to do essentially and how they need to show up to do that, you know, and. The stuff I loved about corporate life was the leadership development stuff and helping people grow in to be better leaders. And I was really concerned about being a better leader myself. And the other part that I've always loved uh, was strategy. You know, just how do you get from point A to point B? What is point B, by the way? Let's figure what that what that looks like out in the future. And how do we line things up to get there? And the way that I have always viewed coaching is it's sort of the intersection of those two things, you know, leadership development and strategy work. And, uh, you know, over the years, it's probably been, especially over the last two or three years, I, I still do a lot of work in the leadership space. And um, I, I enjoy that work and I'm grateful for that work. And I think it makes a difference for people. Uh, what I've concluded in working with my clients, which are usually Fortune 500 scale kind of organizations, what I've concluded over the last seven or eight years, six, five or six years maybe particularly, is, you know, you can talk about all day long about leadership presence. Uh, and that's kind of what I've been doing. That's what my first book was on, was leadership presence. And we can do that, and that, that's good work. But if you're not actually present, then none of that stuff matters. Everything else that we just talked about doesn't matter, because if you're not present with yourself and with others, then you don't make a difference. You don't have the impact that you could have. And that's kind of where I'm that's what I'm growing into really is, is the, the full, you know, the full Monty, if you will, you know? Um, so I don't know if that's, does that answer your question? About it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I answered the path you're on question, but uh, you know, former corporate guy, I used to say it was all the coaching was all the stuff I loved about corporate life. And none of the stuff I didn't love about corporate life. I loved the leadership and strategy. I didn't like, I was an HR person at the end. I didn't like, uh, downsizing and litigation avoidance and, you know, sexual harassment suits and, you know, all the other stuff that you have to deal with as an HR leader. Mm -hmm. I always loved the strategy. I loved the culture change. I loved the how do we create people strategies that help us accomplish what we're trying to accomplish as an organization, as a business. Mm. And, you know, that's really kind of what I do for my clients now, both in the macro level and the, you know, with their organization in the micro level, kind of with their own lives. So, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about is looking at sort of formative experiences uh, early, early on, you know, long before 
the journey starts, what I call the journey before the journey, you know, the people that have influenced you, mentors and people that have shaped you and, and kind of seeing, you know, how those people have impacted you getting to where you're at mm-hmm. and how those, what types of moments have impacted you and getting yeah. to where you're at. So what are they for me? Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, this whole leadership thing that I was talking about started for me probably in Cub Scouts. <laughs> You know, because I was—I grew up in a place called Huntington, West Virginia, uh, that used to be a large, small town, and is now a small, small town. Mm-hmm. It's kind of you know the classic Rust Belt kind of story, but it was a great place to grow up. Uh, but when I grew up there, all the boys—your uh, life as a boy in Huntington was defined by little league baseball and buddy basketball and just whatever sport was in season. And I was a terrible athlete. Um, I sucked. I, mean, I just I, I had no hand-eye coordination and couldn't do any of that stuff. And so I had to find something else to do. And I kind of gravitated towards the leadership stuff. And that really started with Cub Scouts, to be honest. My, my grandfather, this is the, per, the first person who I think is a huge influence in my life. My grandfather was this amazing man who was building houses for Habitat for Humanity when he was 85 years old, 86 years old. He's up on the roof pounding shingles, and that was probably his fourth or fifth career in his life. But the the one thing that he did consistently when I was a little kid, before I was was even born, was he was a scoutmaster for a troop in Huntington, and he uh, took scouts, I don't know how many times, seven or eight different summers to Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico, and I just knew, you know, like, one of the first things I knew that I was cognizant of as a kid was my grandfather was going to New Mexico to take Boy Scouts there, and I wished that I could go. But, you know, I wasn't nearly old enough for that. And he just was this wonderful man, and I was, I'm really grateful because in the last 20 years of his life, we lived close to each other, and I got to know him very, very well as an adult myself, you know, somebody in my 40s. I spending all the, he was 93 when he died, so he had a long life and a, and a great life, and it was just a huge influence on me, both, you know, by aspiration when I was a little rug rat, and just, I guess maybe by admiration, <laughs> you know, when I was an adult, I just so admired him, and uh, so he's, he's big, mm. and um, I guess the other thing, you know, as I became more of an adult, um, and started my career, I was really lucky. I was always in roles where I was close to the top person in the organization, where I was kind of like their, you know, their aide de camp or the person who got things done for them or whatever. And that started, I did a little stint on Wall Street for a year and quickly found out that wasn't for me. Um, and so I'd grown up in West Virginia and I had gone to the Kennedy School of Government uh, before I went to Wall Street. And when you go to a place like the Kennedy School and you're from West, a place like West Virginia, everybody there says, we should go back to West Virginia and run for governor. So yeah, yeah, like I'm going to do that when I'm 26 years old. Uh, but I kind of wanted to, you know. And so when I left Wall Street, I went back to West Virginia thinking I was going to get into politics eventually. And I got a job working for the governor at that time, a guy named Gaston Caperton, who was a reformer. It was the only thing he ever ran for was governor of West Virginia. He'd been very successful in business and, and served two terms. Went on to become the president of the college board of the SAT people, and he's retired now. But I traveled all over the state of West Virginia with him for almost two years, you know, and, and he had a 
platform called the Partnership for Progress. It was sort of a grassroots economic development program for West Virginia because jobs are always the issue in West Virginia. And I ran that for him. And I, you know, was with him all the time. And so I got to see what somebody was really, you know, had had a lot of success in their lives and, you know, had run a big company and uh, sold that and then became governor of West Virginia and was really highly regarded and and really effective. And so I, you know, as a 27 or 8 year old or whatever I was back then, I, I got exposure to just an incredibly high capacity leader like him. Then I went into banking and I ended up working for the guy who was the president of this, the flagship bank in this holding company who was slotted to be the CEO of the holding company. And he kind of took me as his guy, you know, and I helped him uh, basically established the culture that he wanted to run there through total quality improvement when that was a big thing and just traveled all over the place with him, you know, when we were doing acquisitions of other banks and kind of learned at his elbow, you know, leadership and business. And then I ended up working for the president of a gas pipeline company, that's where I was the head of HR. And she had, she was highly regarded in her field and I learned a ton from her. Hardest job I ever had, but one of the best people I ever worked for. Our job interview uh, was half an hour job interview stuff over dinner, and then we we spent the next an hour and a half, hour and a half drinking a bottle of wine and confessing to each other how our secret career ambition was to be Methodist ministers. <laughs> Both of us wanted to be that, and so she is now, and I'm not. So I was for <laughs> batting 500. She's like the district superintendent for the Virginia United Methodist Conference, and. She, you know, got out of business eventually and went to divinity school. And um, I don't know. I've just had a, an amazing array of mentors in my life. I've been so fortunate that way. And it was actually brilliant preparation for the work I do now because I, you know, I en- ended up being an executive myself eventually, not at a CEO level, but you know, I was on a senior management team a couple of times. And um, so I, you know, I had that experience directly, but I, the, the experience that really mattered was being so close to all these chief executive officers that I got to work for, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that was just enormously valuable in building the perspective that I needed to do the kind of work I do now. Well, we'll, we'll actually get into that. Uh, okay. I have a question for you. Having been so close to working with a politician, uh, what is it that you learned about human behavior and human psychology from the world of politics that has influenced and shaped the work that you do today? Wow, that's a great question. It's not one I've actually thought about exactly the way you asked it. Um, so I'll answer first with what I know I learned uh, from working for him for two years is I learned that I didn't want to be in politics. <laughs> <laughs> so that was thing number one. And I guess you know what why didn't so why didn't I want to be in politics maybe it leads to the second answer uh, answer the actual answer to your question um, I just it's a very for me at least it was a very disillusioning experience like he was great he was so totally committed and a lot of the people around him were great and not everybody like in the state legislature was awful but a lot of them were <laughs> you know and there was just so much self-interest Uh, enormous amounts of self-interest at play and in that particular environment. And, you know, I think we see a lot of that today. I mean, I think, you know, Congress is polling lower than it's ever polled in our history and as a country. And, you know, why is that? And I think, you know, people aren't stupid. They they know self-interest when they see it, you know. And, And 
I, you know, so how does that relate to what I do now? I guess, you know, we're human, so, so we all at some level have some degree of self-interest unless we're, you know, pretty highly evolved, mm-hmm. and not many of us get that far. I'm not there. <laughs> um, but um, I guess maybe, how do you get past the, how do you get past the point where it's all about you, <laughs> you know? And a lot of the people I work with, um, a couple of things happen, I think. One is, you know, my first book was called The Next Level, and it's very much a book, you know, what the subtitle, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. And it's very much written for, for achievers, you know, people who on a developmental stage are in the achievement part of their development. And I was an achiever when I wrote it. I mean, you know, I, I, and I, I'm happy with the book, and people really like that book. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. But it represents a time in my life where I was that way too. You know, it was just like, how do I get where I, you know, how do I get what I want? You know, mm-hmm. and, and how, how do I be successful when I get there? And those are really valid questions, but there's there are bigger questions than that, <laughs> you know. And so I, I think a lot of what I'm trying to do now, I'm trying to answer those questions for myself, for sure. But I'm also trying to help my clients stop and reflect enough to ask them for themselves what are those bigger questions and what are you really trying to do? Not just in this job, but like in your life, you know, like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. And um, slow down enough to process that. And, and that's why I wrote the second book was to try to address those questions mm. and, well, that, and address that opportunity, I guess. So how then do you go about transcending self-interest while at the same time uh, achieving the things you want to achieve? Well, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure you can, <laughs> you know, honestly. I mean, if, and I'm, I'm not knocking achievement. I mean, I guess that's how, you know, that's what creates progress, you know, in the world. I mean, that's, you know, it's, you know, it's why we have the internet <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you know, because people really, well, I, let, me, let me think about it this way. And this, you promised me a conversation, and this really does feel like a conversation because I'm kind of thinking in real time here. But I think, what's the achievement for, or what's the purpose of the achievement? Right? Um, I, I'm going to get the the attribution on the quote wrong. I want to say it's not some theologian. It's not Paul Tillich. It's somebody else, and I, I'm not going to waste your time trying to come up with who said it, but the, the, it comes from theology, uh, or the study of theology, that uh, joy is when your great interest meets the world's great need. You know, that's the intersection of what you are just totally jazzed about mm-hmm. and what the world actually needs, you know, and... I think that's kind of what it's about, right? I mean, you know, so achievement, you know, is, you know, like I was very proud of the fact uh, for years and years that I was the youngest vice president ever in the history of the bank I worked for. I was very proud of the fact that I was the youngest vice president on the senior management team at the, ga- at the gas pipeline company I worked for. Um, and being the youngest vice president was kind of an end in itself back then. You know, I mean, that was that was my goal. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, it sounds almost stupid to say that now. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it doesn't. Maybe not almost. It does sound stupid to say that now, because it's like, you know, that as an end in itself is just like, really? That's all you got? I mean, is that is that it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like the you know means and ends. You know, what is it a means to an end or is it an end in itself? And you know, I could see wanting to be in a position like the vice president of a, of a big company so that you can affect some kind of change. But if you only want to be, and frankly, this is where I was, if you only want to be vice president because you want the status that comes with that and you want the perks that come with that and it makes you feel good about yourself and it makes your mom and dad proud of you and blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. <sighs> no wonder I was unhappy. <laughs> it, We'll, we'll get to that. I have some thoughts around that. Uh, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is this idea of an intersection between your passion and what the world needs or what mm-hmm. lights you up and what the world needs. You think that exists in everybody's life? Wow, that's a good question. Does it? No. Can it? Maybe. And is it necessary for us to reach our full potential? Yes, I think so. But... I don't have any way of proving that. <laughs> but yeah, it seems intuitively true. I mean, I go back to my grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. My grandfather um, loaded barges for Allied Chemical Corporation. That was most. That was the first adult career that he had, at least that I'm aware of. I'm sure he did other stuff before that. But when I was a little kid, before I was a little kid, that's... He was going up and down the East Coast, making sure that the barges were loaded safely and correctly for Allied Chemical. He retired from that and was the older retired guy at the local bank who greeted you when you came in and gave your kids lollipops and kind of did, you know, just stuff for the bank president and kind of ran errands and stuff. But that was his second job. Mm -hmm. And he did that for 10 years. And then his wife died and he build Habitat for Humanity houses for 10 more years after that, you know, until he was in his mid-80s. And when he was too not able physically to do that anymore, he went and supervised the guys building houses because he liked to tell them how to do it. <laughs> that's, that's not how you put in that two-by-four or whatever, right? Uh, so that, and then he also ran the, uh, the Sunday dinners once a month at the Huntington City Mission, you know, and he did that and probably two or three years before he died. Hmm. And so my grandfather uh, is not a famous guy and not somebody who made a huge impact on the world, but I do think that his passion met the world's needs, you know, in, hmm. in, the, in the space that he was in. I don't hmm. think passion meeting the world's needs necessarily means that you have to change the whole freaking world. Yeah. You just have to change the part of it that you're in, <laughs> you know. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, that, that's actually an interesting statement. You know, I think it, it, it's interesting because I think that change the world has such grand connotations associated with it yeah it's kind of like change the world okay well that's reserved for the select few people like steve elon, jobs and Mahatma gandhi and yeah, elon yeah. musk yeah. and i really thought this through because i am working on a section uh in my new book about changing the world and i said you know by creating something that didn't exist before by definition you have changed the world huh great point 
you know, so every one of us changes the world every single day without even realizing it. That's perfect. I, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's start talking specifically about leadership uh, and success and uh, achievement. I mean, you've had a front row seat to arguably the people who play at the top of their game, like the best in their field. And I'm really interested in what it is that enables these people to operate at such a high level and what separates them from the rest of the pack. Yeah, yeah. You ask a lot of really great questions. You've been doing this for a while. Um, (laughs) It shows. Um, What separates the really high-level people from the rest of the pack? Um, Several things. So like the woman that I worked for at uh, the pipeline company, Kathy Abbott, Mm -hmm. Uh, my first exposure to Kathy Abbott was before I met her, there was a two-page spread in Business Week, a two-page article on her with a big picture across the fold of her. And the the headline on the article was, Kathy Abbott is no good old boy. And she was working at Enron at the time, before Enron became a criminal enterprise. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was actually, you know, people forget that. It was actually a very legitimate and very successful energy company for a while. And Mm -hmm. Kathy was in the same generation there as Jeff Skilling. And, and to be honest, Kathy was on the losing side of that, right? If Kathy had won, Enron wouldn't have become Enron. Right. But, Jeff, but Jeff Skilling and his buddies won, and Enron became Enron. But they made the point in the article that her, her nickname was Tough as Nails Abbott, that she did not want to be on the other side of the negotiating table from Kathy Abbott. And that's very true. Kathy was relentless you know, as a business leader and really big heart, but you, you, as you know, she's a Methodist minister now, so one would hope so, (laughs) Um, but really big heart, but you had to really be with her for a while to see that part of her, you know, because she was all about getting shit done, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we're going to, and what I learned from her is uh, it's, it's almost like the Jimmy V speech. Don't give up, never give up. You know, she, there were so many times where I would have, if I'd been in her role, I said, well, okay, we, we tried it, we tried it two or three times and it's not working, let's stop. She never stopped, you know, and I think a lot of the leaders that I've worked with since her, I see that in them. They, Elon Musk is that way. I mean, we mentioned him, you know, mm-hmm. like the world changing guy. I mean, I, I heard a, po- a podcast interview with him recently, we, I guess in college, he was, he made a list of the five or five to seven factors, I don't know what the number was, of big things that he thought were going to determine the future of humanity. And he picked, you know, I'm going to work on three of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like one was, you know, habitable life outside of Earth or whatever. And, you know, people think, well, that dude's nuts, you know, but he's been relentless on it. And that's, I learned that from Kathy. So I think that level of just, you know, you believe in what you're doing. You, you know, you're you're putting the right resources behind it, and you're and you and you you're trying to make the right decisions, and you just you don't give up. Mm. You know, I, I, that's that's one. Um, I think the uh, the other one that really stands out for me is the the best leaders that I've worked with are extremely excellent listeners, um, and they don't just listen with their ears; they listen with their eyes. Um, they really, really pay attention to what's going on around them and and they connect with people because of that, right? 
Um, and so their people will go to the wall for them because of the connection, mm-hmm. you know, and because they believe that person, that leader knows who they are, you know, and they, you know, it's, it's the question they always ask about in, in polling on presidential politics, you know, understands the lives of people like me, you know, does the president understand the life of people like me? And I think the best leaders actually do, you know, mm-hmm. they, they haven't forgotten, you know, most of us weren't born rich, you know, some of us were, but not most of us aren't. And, but people rise above those circumstances and end up in really powerful positions. And I think the, the ones who are the, make the biggest difference over the long run, remember what it was like to not be in that position. And, and, and because of that, they can connect with people in a way, and that's primarily based on listening, um, that people would do anything for them. Do you think that certain people are destined for the executive suite? And the reason I'm asking this is for very personal reasons. Um, I was a disaster in the corporate world. Like, I could not navigate that system to save my life. And one of the things that's become very apparent to me is that it's an entire game to be played. Mm. And if you're not good at the game, then you don't make it. What, What do you think the game is? I think there's a lot of politics. I think that there's a very difficult balance between being who you truly are and trying to fit into a system that rewards conformity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good. That's good stuff. Uh, and you've got a, a view into it that I don't because yeah. I've never been able to be, I've never risen in the ranks high enough to be sitting in the executive suite, which yeah. is why I probably don't have a normal job. Yeah. Well, I don't either now. Yes. <laughs> so maybe I'm not that good at it, <laughs> but, but, um, so two things, uh, first, uh, politics is often used, that word is often used in a, in a negative connotation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, it's all politics. Yes. And your point is, because <laughs> it, it kind of, it would naturally be, I, I, you know, politics comes from, I won't get the pronunciation right, but the root of the word is Greek, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's poly, or, you know, it's the, it's the you know it's it's the greek word for the people you know and and so in any organization it's made up of people so naturally you're going to have politics it's just it's just relationships right you know and and it's managing relationships and you have to do that in all aspects of life not just work you know if you're going to unless you choose to you know be Thoreau and live in a cabin by the lake or whatever um which nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, if you're gonna, but if you're, you know, if you're gonna engage out in the world, then you've got to be somewhat effective in dealing with people. Sure. And so work is the same thing. And so then the question gets to be: Is it a, is it a pathologically political environment? And if that's the case, then you've got to make some decisions about: Are you comfortable working? Are you effective working in a pathological environment or a pathological climate? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real, you know, that's a, I think that's always important to keep your mind, your eye on that. But even if it's not pathological, I mean, people aren't always going to agree with each other. People are going to have people that they're closer to and not closer to and have different goals and self-interest will be strong with some people and not so much with others. And, you know, it's, it's all that. And so I think just paying attention to the relationships is always 
a good move. Um, there's a second point I was going to make that your question raised, but I got so caught up on my politics point, I forget what it was. So, you know, interestingly enough, I happen to think, and this is obviously based on my own experience and my own perspective, that the system is designed to reward certain people and punish certain people. And only a certain group of people will thrive within that system. You know, we had another executive coach here, a woman named Susanna Scully, who uh, mm-hmm. has, you know, coached people who are executives at Apple. And she said probably one of the most savvy of her clients comes from a family of politicians. And that, for that reason, he's able to navigate the corporate landscape in a way that few people can. Mm-hmm. And that's a skill, she said, it's, is necessary to, to rise in the ranks. And yeah. I, I don't know that all of us are necessarily born with that skill or can you know develop it so that brings up another question these kinds of people that you're talking about the ones that you're exposed to um you know leaders and mentors can the skills that they have be developed uh in another person or do you think that certain people are just born with the capacity to be like that and then of course you know on the, on the flip side of that there's you know certain people i think have the capacity to be to be born with you know this renegade tendency to be mm-hmm. you know incredibly uh you know prone to risk taking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so the, and I just remember what I wanted to say in response to the, the other question, but I'll try to circle back to that in a minute. But to the question, you know, can you develop it? I, being in the business that I'm in, I have to believe that, or you know, like <laughs> it's in a bullshit business, right? Sure. I mean, and I do believe that you can develop it. Um, and I don't believe necessarily, uh, I don't believe at all, frankly, that it, that it means that you have to change who you are. Uh-huh. I think it just means you have to be more attuned to who other people are and, and, how, they, and how they are. Uh, I like to think of, of the leadership, you know, a set of leadership behaviors that you could exhibit or that you might exhibit. I like to think of those as dials on an amplifier, right? And like, you know, I, I, I could show up with a certain set of strengths and characteristics that are inherent to me, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, the classic question on Jungian personality stuff and Myers-Briggs, you know, which is related to that and is, you know, is it nature or nurture? And I think most people would argue it's a bit of both, mm-hmm. you know, that you're, you know, you're born with certain traits and characteristics. I have two young adult children and I definitely see, you know, I, we, my wife and I could see that in them from one month old, how different they were from each other, you know, just, and there was hardly any time for the nurture part to even kick in at that point. It was just nature. Right. But over time, you know, yeah, you can adapt to your climate, you know, Uh, and if you learn, you know, if you're aware and intentional about doing that, my new book is about mindfulness, and that's mm-hmm. how I define mindfulness. So it's awareness plus intention. If you're aware and intentional about it, yeah, you can change and adapt. Uh, and you can dial those amplifier dial up or down, you know, depending on what you're trying to do. I can, you know, if, I, if I'm a certain level of confidence, you know, day in and day out, and I'm trying to lead a group of people to do something really hard and help them believe that they can do it, then I even need to dial my confidence knob up for a few weeks or months, you know, and kind of amp it up. So they, you know, it's like Richard Brainall or uh, Kenneth Brainall playing Henry V, you know, at Agincourt. We few, we happy few, you know, it's the, you know, it's the greatest pep talk of all time. You know, I've got to exhibit that confidence, but if I leave it there, you know, like dialed up to 10, 9 or 10, 
and just stick it there, then I look insane, right? <laughs> and I, I, need, I need to dial it back sometimes. Sometimes I need to be more receptive and less transmittive, you know, and, and dial that. And it's not like I'm not confident, but just shut up for a while uh-huh. and let people do their own work, you know, and, and come to me with their ideas instead of me giving them the idea all the time or giving them the answer. And so it's just, you know, that's the fun of it really is what adjustments do I have to make to, to, to be effective and mm-hmm. to, and to lead people in a way that works for them and works for the organization and works for everybody. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating and fun, right? And I'm not being not me. I'm just being, I'm just choosing what to emphasize so that we get shit done. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, it, it's yeah. interesting. Uh, one of the questions I have for you is around sort of, you know, environment. And I'm of the belief that if you put people in the right environment, they will thrive. But I'm also realizing that there's a good amount of time where talent is mismatched with environment and people are doing work that is completely out of alignment with their values. Mm-hmm. And I feel that this happens a lot. And you happen to have been an HR executive. So I'm curious as to why you think that is. Uh, why they are working why, why on stuff are people, that doesn't match their values? Yeah, why why is it that people end up in jobs that don't match their values, and how is it that we continually manage to mismatch talent and environment to the point where somebody says, you know what, I'm having a midlife crisis, I hate this job, and it took me 10 years to figure it out. Right, right, because the, they're living somebody else's story mm-hmm. and don't even realize that they are. Um, you know, it's and the odds are stacked against you ever stacked against all of us in that respect we live in a you know a mass media consumer culture you know where the american dream is to have the coolest car and the biggest house and you know whatever and we're fed that all the time mm-hmm. uh by the media and and it's easy to get sucked into that and so you end up in a job where you're you know making whatever you're making and you're you're still not making enough because you've taken on commitments that are bigger than what your job can afford and you know so I feel like I'm trapped at that point I can't get out of it and well yeah you're trapped if you choose to live your life that way <laughs> or you could do something different and that's easy for me to say sure you know as and I I understand you know there's they're probably, frankly, not listening to this interview, but there are, you know, millions of people in this country and billions of people in the world who don't ever come close to any of that, you know, just because of the the, the parents that they didn't choose or mm-hmm. the community that they were born into that they didn't choose. And, you know, it's, that's a whole other thing that I'm not at all qualified to try to solve. I, you know, I, I end up working with very privileged people, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, it, and uh, what's fascinating about it is quite often they have no awareness at all of how privileged they are, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know? So I, I, you know, I'm trying to help privileged people be more privileged <laughs> in some <laughs> fashion, uh, you know, or, or that's a terrible way to say it, but, but, you know, it's a question your, you know, question your assumptions. I, you were asking when we were talking earlier about the, um, you know, the politics and mm-hmm. can you be true to yourself and all of that. I, um, one of my, are we? I've already sworn a couple of times on your show. Are we allowed to swear? Yeah, on your go show? for it. Okay, okay. So I have to, I have to swear to tell this story. Um, <laughs> one of 
my favorite movie scenes ever. Uh, and I think it's so applicable to so many people I work with in my work is, did you ever see Risky Business? Uh-huh. You know, before Tom Cruise yeah. you know, kind of was jumping on Oprah's couch. You know, he was pre-Oprah's couch, Tom Cruise. And, you know, so he's Joel, the good, you know, by the book high school kid who wants to get into Princeton. And, and so his parents go out of town for the weekend, you know, the big suburban, beautiful house. They're going out of town for the weekend. They're leaving him there by himself. And his pipe smoking friend, Miles, comes over. And you know, Miles is kind of the instigator and says, oh, Joel, you know, your parents going out of town this weekend, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what that means? No, what? You've got to have a party here this weekend. No, no, I've got my Princeton interviews on Tuesday. I've got the SATs coming up. I've got to study and prep for that. I can't do that. And Miles says, Joel, 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 when are you going to realize that sometimes you just got to say what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Because saying what the fuck gives you freedom. And freedom gives you opportunity. And opportunity is your future, Joel. (laughs) You know, And it's just like I see so many people that just don't question what they're doing, mm. you know? And it's not to say they should all quit their jobs. Right. But could you do it in a different way? And, and could, you, could you take a stand and be true to yourself? And what difference would that make in your organization? What if everybody did that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It might be a whole other thing. Uh, you know, it's like play a bigger game. And, and don't, don't buy into... First, you know, don't buy into the story. And to not buy into the story, you have to recognize first what the story is. Hmm. And then you can make some conscious and mindful decisions about how you want to play it. Well, you know, I think validation plays a big role in all of this. Um, And it's really funny because I realize, uh, you know, uh, I've been reading my friend A.J. Leon's collection of essays that I will go through every now and then uh, called The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit. And he was a finance executive. And there's a great section of his book where he says, don't seek validation. And he talks about how you're going to want to seek validation from, you know, your parents, your peers, uh, your friends. And he said, but if you need validation from this group of people, you'll never get started with anything. And I was like, wow here I am two years later and it, you know, that was kind of like hitting me in the face this morning, like it never had before. And I thought, all right, that means that I need to get to work. And this validation seeking is just a form of resistance from doing the work that I need to do. Hmm. So where are you going to get your validation then? That's what are your thoughts on that? Given, <laughs> you know, given, given your perspective. I mean, I, I happen to, to have some interesting views into this shaped by a business partner. He said, you know, Validation is actually, you know, treated like an environment. You choose the people who you know you'll get positive reinforcement from by design, and yeah. don't try to seek it from the people that you probably will never get it from. Yeah. And so, what I'd also suggest is choosing people that you're going to get validation from is still an extrinsic source of validation. Right. You know, and so there's the extrinsic and the intrinsic, and. I think the only one that we can really rely on is are the intrinsic sources of validation. <laughs> you know, like what you know, what works for me, mm-hmm. you know? And and I think by be understanding that and by being true to yourself, and I'm not saying that I always do that because sure. it's like to, you know, it's again, we live in society and it's really easy to get hung up on extrinsic sources of validation. Um but you know, know thyself and, and what is it that is really most important to you, really meaningful to you and 
what is it that lets you know that you did a great job, you know, or that you did all you could? Um, and can you take satisfaction in that? You know, I don't know. Okay. So one sort of final question before we start wrapping things up. Mm -hmm. Um, how have you, how, how has yoga influenced everything that you do and how do we bring mindfulness to the things we're doing in our day-to-day -day lives? Mm, well, so, um, I do yoga so I can walk <laughs> basically. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, um, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2009 and uh, I was, 47 or 8 years old, whatever I was at that point, I guess 48. And um, that was a huge shock. I would, I'd always been a runner, uh, like since I was 12 or 13 years old. That was my thing because it was the one sport I could do that didn't require a lot of hand-eye coordination. And, and so when you run as long as I ran, I still run a little bit now, but not every day like I used to. And it took me a long time to get back to running after the MS started. But when you run as much as I, as runners do, you defy, at least my experience, if you'd asked me that question that you asked, that you opened with about, you know, how do you define yourself or, or, you know, whatever. And I said, well, I'm a coach and I'm an author and whatever I said, at the top of my list for most of my life would have been, I'm a runner. And, because running defines how you view the world, you know? It's, it's like you keep running, you keep pushing. There's a reason you started this race. There's a reason you started this run. You might not remember it now in the, in the depths of your pain, but there was a reason that you started this race and just believe in that and keep, you know, keep the fuck running, basically. Mm -hmm. And so when I couldn't run anymore uh, because of the MS, it was like I didn't know who I was for a while. And the MS was... It was a I, that was that summer of 2009, and I was pretty. It was a pretty slippery slope, no pun intended. It was a pretty slippery slope for the rest of 2009 through most of 2010, and I went from being somebody who could run, you know, five or six miles without even thinking about it, to barely being able to walk around the block, and, and I had to like kind of drag myself up the stairs at night by the banister to go to bed and. My brain kind of felt like a wet sponge inside my skull because uh, you get a lot of cognitive kind of issues with MS. And then I started on this big drug trial at one of the research hospitals. And um, long story short, uh, after seven or eight months of that, my liver was almost fried. Uh, the doctor called out of the blue one day, said, you need to come, I need to admit you. And I said, like, why? Because your liver numbers are 10 times higher than they should be. It's in the blood work. And... Right before that happened, a couple of months before that call from the doctor, a friend of my wife's who's like a holistic health expert um, and, a, and a yoga teacher and said Scott should try yoga. She'd done a lot of work with yoga and people with autoimmune diseases like MS, and she said it could really help them. And I said, like, you know, how the hell am I going to do yoga? I can barely stand up. But I went, and I told the teacher when I got there, I said, look, you know, kind of whispering, because I didn't tell anybody back then that I had MS. And... Um, I said, you know, I have MS, and this isn't going to go well, and you need to watch me. And she said, listen, it was, a, it was a heated studio, too. And so I was really worried about that as well. And she said, listen, we have people with conditions like yours here pretty frequently. It's not a problem. I know what to do. And 
here's the deal. If you come here three days a week, it'll change your body. If you come here more than three days a week, it'll change your life. And so I started going more than three days a week. And the impact on my body was almost immediate. I mean, it was just, it's, it is amazing. And that's how I manage it. That and meditation is, and trying to be, and I'm not always successfully, but trying to be smart about what I eat, um, is how I'm managing this. And so it's had this immediate direct impact on my ability to move through, like literally and figuratively move through life. Um, and it's what keeps me going. Um, what I've also learned, wow, there's a, the whole last chapter of my new book is pretty much about what I've learned from yoga and, and, and the kind of this journey with MS. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned from yoga, um, is I, I summarize it as progress comes incrementally then suddenly. Hmm. And meaning that you can work on a pose uh, day after day and not feel like you're making any progress and then suddenly you're doing it. Like one day you go to class and all of a sudden you're doing it. Like I've been working, like right my current little yoga project right now is doing handstands in the middle of the room and not using the wall to kind of catch my legs when when I go up and handstand, which, you know, is absurd even to make that statement that I'm going up and handstand, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that, I mean, even against the wall, that's absurd. Right. But I, I, two years ago when I started the yoga teacher training, I couldn't even get my feet up over my hips to be, even go against the wall. But two or three weeks ago, just screwing around in the yoga room, there was plenty of space around my mat. I did, a headstand, which I learned how to do three or four years ago, and then I go, oh, I'm bored, I'll try a handstand here in the middle of the room. All of a sudden, I'm up in a handstand. Hmm. Well, where the hell did that come from? Well, I've been working on it every day for two years, you know? And that applies to so many other aspects of life, you know, just that one, that's just one of many things, you know, that I've learned about life from, from the yoga that, you know, that there's no such thing as an overnight success, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it might look that way from the outside. You know, the Beatles go on Ed Sullivan, all of a sudden they're huge. Well, you know, they were playing basements in Hamburg for three or four years before that. <laughs> and put to rooms of 10 people, mm -hmm. you know, and they got bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, you know, they took over the world. And it's, I just find it, there's a great John Wooden quote that I love, that basically paraphrasing it. Uh, when you do little things each day, eventually big things occur. And, I, and I've used that in my leadership programs for years, but it's never meant more to me than it has over the last three or four years is because it, it's, it's my life. It's my life. You know, every day I'm really just trying to do little things, you know, and, and it's been a very humbling experience. I mean, you know, yoga or MS is a, is a great one for reminding you that you're not in control and sometimes I kid myself that I'm controlling it through yoga, and, and I think I'm, I think I'm mitigating it. I know for sure I'm mitigating it through yoga because if I have a couple of days where I can't get to the yoga like I need to, I definitely feel it. Mm. But it's that little step every day, you know. And so you don't have to solve for 100 percent. You know, you can solve for five percent, and if you're consistent on the five percent solution, you know, in a month you're 20 percent better. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that's answering your question, but I, it's, we could have a whole hour on yeah. yoga. Sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. 
Well, Scott, this has been really, really cool. And thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been very, very different than a lot of some of the interviews have done. So I'm going to close with my final question, which is how we finish all our interviews uh, at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow. What is it that makes someone unmistakable? Is that a synonym for unique in your mind? Yeah, I would say so, maybe. I mean, however you want to answer it. Yeah, right. What is it that makes someone unmistakable? Honesty. Honesty. Um, True with yourself and in turn, true with others. Hmm. Awesome. Well, Scott, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm honored. And uh, like I said, great conversation. I've done lots of interviews, and I can honestly uh, honestly say that none of them have been like this. <laughs> so thank you, Shereen. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, uh, well, I appreciate that as well. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.